0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have a return visitor, Rod Jefferson of Roderick Jefferson and Associates, LLC, who is my favorite and by far the best customer enablement specialist that I know. Rod, quick introduction again, 30 seconds.
1: Thanks, first of all, for having me again. I can't wait to dive into this. So to your point, I'm Roderick Jefferson. I'm the CEO of Roderick Jefferson and Associates. We are a sales enablement, sales coaching firm. That focuses across the board from SMB kind of 10 to 100 million, all the way up to some of the largest brands on the planet. Why I'm so excited about today is I cannot wait to talk about a couple of things. One, what are we doing right in sales enablement from a customer perspective? And secondly, how can we help out with the channel as well from enablement? I've seen too many times where enablement practitioners try and peanut butter across to channel the same way that we do in-house and we both know that is a sure recipe for failure
0: well i'm glad you made that point because what we've seen david davies and i when we were putting together making channel sales work as a book and then subsequently as a program is the number of organizations that have taken their sales training program and then put channel in front of it and that's pretty much the sum total of the alteration And it just doesn't work. That's not the reality. So let's kick off with what what are the four fundamental problems that you see with enabling the channel?
1: Well, I'd say one is understanding the difference between the why, not just the what, of enabling channel versus enabling in-house. The second is enabling them from the perspective of it's not just connecting with the AE or the account executive. But you've got to bring all parts of the business to the table to make sure that everyone understands how, what, and why you enable it. Thirdly is incorporate them into your overall selling motions and make sure that you understand how they fit into the buyer's journey different than your in-house folks. And then fourth is, (laughs) and this is the interesting thing. Most companies that I've worked for and worked with, they treat channel kind of like a third cousin at a family reunion. And what I mean by that is they want the revenue from them, but you just kind of wave at them and hope that they don't come sit at your table. Let's change that mindset. Let's bring them to the table. Let's give them a good cut of meat and some nice veggies and and mash to go with it and treat them like they are truly a part of the overall family versus that one that you just kind of wave at and go, yeah, I don't really know you. And I know we've got similar blood but can you stay at your table and I'll stay at mine?
0: That makes sense? Uh, Absolutely. Well, I always describe the way the direct sales team treats the channel as if they're the gingerhead, bastard, ugly stepdaughter. So I I think your analogy is a lot more polite. (laughs) One of the things that we've talked about in the past is how sales enablement needs to be able to articulate the value of co-partnerships with the channel. Can we explore that for a second?
1: Absolutely. And I think that goes back to that simple word of of why. Why are you working with them? How can you partner with them, not just leverage them? And what I mean is, it's not just about getting them to open doors for you. It's really about going all the way back to the very beginning, doing call planning together, understanding what's the goal, agreeing on business outcomes, and making sure that you both understand your role and how they they intersect, not just, again, support or leverage each other. And I think the third piece is you have to intrinsically understand what the value of their business is to your business, not just as a value add to your customer, your prospect, or your client, but how can you both go in and make this mutually equitable and up-level your client or your prospect,
0: not just your company? I'll take that further, and I would say that Vendor channel managers need to understand what the channel partner is trying to achieve in their business, why they are in business, what they want from the relationship, why they are bringing this vendor into their portfolio, and how it fits as a part of the overall portfolio of solutions that they can offer their clients. And if you don't understand that, then you're already at a massive disadvantage and you're probably going to drive your partners to go dark on you in a very short space mm. of time because they will, they, they will feel that your aspirations and objectives are at odds with theirs. And we've seen this hundreds of times over the last 20, 30 years because time and time again, channel managers are transactional, they're selfish, um, and they pay no attention to why the partners are in business. They don't spend time. They don't spend anywhere near enough time upfront establishing the ground rules, the upfront contract, the, the prenup, you know, who keeps the kids in, in the event of a divorce. What is it that you're trying to achieve? And if you don't do that upfront, then what you risk is later on when conflict happens, you haven't got a plan. The rule is simple. If you're going to fight, fight upfront. Establish that in the courtship process. So before you put a ring on their finger, make sure you understand what each side is trying to achieve and act as partners, not as if you've got some indentured servant who happens to bring you stuff every now and again. Your thoughts? I think you make a a
1: very valid point. And too many times the channel has been treated as sales servants, sales scribes, and sales support of which they are not. I think the most successful relationships that I've seen with channel and direct sales is that, to your point, they fight behind closed doors during the courtship. And I think fight is probably a strong word. There are some serious disagreements, right? And I think it's more malalignment than disagreement because a lot of sales folks, frankly, don't know how to deal with channel, don't understand the value of channel, and don't even know the right questions to ask. And I think a part of that comes from the sales leaders passing on the same bad genes to the kids, if you will, to stay with your analogy, right? And this is the way that we did it. So here's how I want you to do it. I take a different approach with it. I think the great thing about sales is they can learn from the channel quite simply one thing and, and one important piece. And that is that the channel can open doors to a home that you may not even see the house. And what I mean is they've got these relationships established, they're already entrenched, they've already built up trust, and they've got the the strength inside to be able to be a sponsor for you, and not to mentor you in and shuffle you in the door, but really to say, this is an opportunity for this company, this individual, that we are completely aligned, and I'm bringing them in because they bring a component
0: different than what we bring. So to that point... I interviewed my old AE um, 18 years ago. I worked for him as his SDR. And I interviewed him for my podcast uh, last week. And he's just closed a $100 million deal. There were, 12 par- there were 12 partners involved. And the partners were absolutely integral. They ended up creating introductions to the board. And they shortened the sales cycle by between six and nine months. Now, think about that. These people have close working relationships. The PWCs, the Accentures, uh, the Gemini's. these guys have uh, relationships already with the boards of the companies that they work with. And if you are not leveraging those relationships effectively, you are going to be beating against a very closed door. And your cost of sale will go up astronomically. In, in Graham's case, his average cost of pursuit is a quarter of a million dollars. Now, when you look at the typical enterprise environment where it's normally a bid situation, the reality is that in terms of the number of pursuits based on corporate visions research, it's one in 38.5 pursuits, ends up with one of the four bidders at the final stage winning it. That's a 2.6% conversion rate. Now, when you start to tot up those $250,000, none of which is really accounted for, because there's no line item that says, this is how much we spent whilst chasing business, then that can be hideously expensive. I mean, so, you know, just do the maths on that. Yeah, that's 15 million bucks. Well, no, it's about 7 million bucks.
1: 7 <laughs> okay. million. That, that's yeah. material money, though. I mean, that's not uh, couch positions we're talking about, more rounding error.
0: Yeah, and uh, that's per salesperson, incidentally, you could be racking up hundreds of millions of dollars, especially as you scale and grow, and you go international. Um, So tell me this then, where do you see the friction, and how do you leverage that friction in order to be able to create the best outcome for the end customer, the partners, and the vendors? I think the
1: friction comes again from misunderstanding the value and, and how to truly partner, right? Not just to leverage someone. And I'll tell you what, what I did in a previous life as an enablement leader to kind of relieve some of that pressure, if you will. So we did our typical, you know, onboarding sales boot camp as as every company did pre-COVID, right? We brought everyone together. We hung out for a week. We had a lot of happy hours and, and we shared a lot of knowledge. But I did something different. So first of all, there was pre-work required for any individual to come. I did the same thing with our partners. I gave them the pre-work that they needed to complete before they came in. And it wasn't major amount of hours because I understand the importance of billing hours. But what I did was brought them into the first two days of our sales bootcamp. Now, we built the bootcamp in the lifecycle of a sale. So now we're talking about discovery, qualification, making sure we understand the partner ecosystem, all those things how can you understand the partner ecosystem without having a partner engaged? Not only did I bring them in, but I made sure in that first two days that they had a place on the podium to really talk about the value of what they do and what they bring to the table. Now, also in that first two days was an offsite happy hour. Why did I do that? Because I want people to literally get to know the person that they're dealing with and start making those connections. And what we saw was, First, an incremental increase in connection collaboration, but then we took it a step further, took it from the boot camp, And as part of the continuing education series, we brought them in to talk differently to our AEs than we did to our customer support managers, because obviously the sales motions are different. Now, they've got a connection in the front of the house with sales. They've got a connection in the back of the house with customer success. And what that started to do now was drive up our ARR instantly, or I wouldn't say instantly, but over time, because now you're not fighting to your point, the, the, the cost of penetration, you're not fighting to get into these larger accounts because your partner's already there. You're not arguing with your partner because you've already mapped out the ground rules of who owns what, and to your point, who gets the kids if there is a divorce. You're also not trying to figure out how to quote unquote, sell for the partner. You're selling through the partner now and with the partner,
0: as opposed to trying to sell the partner. And I think that was the game changer. If we look at the kind of pressure that enablement is under, we're we're obviously gonna always be looking at things like decreased time to ramp, increased revenue, generating customers for life. How does that translate into the channel? I know it sounds like a a naive and obvious question, but I'm sure that there are some nuances that will be very relevant here.
1: Well, everything you said is the value of the channel. How do you decrease time to revenue? How do you increase seller productivity? How do you create customers for life? Well, you do it by connecting with the right partners and establishing a mutually equitable win with that partner. And what I mean by that is, what's the partner going to get out of this? But also, what's the value of having the partner here? And it's not just about the ROI anymore, Marcus, right? The return on investment. It's about the COI now. And that's the cost of inaction. How much further does this push you behind? How much further does it extend your close cycle by not bringing in a valued seasoned partner that's already connected into the accounts that you're trying to get to? You use the word that's extremely important, and that's relationship. Relationships are are the backbone of sales. Would you agree? Uh, Absolutely. So with that in mind, why wouldn't you bring someone in that can accelerate that relationship, build trust instantaneously, and then cut down that time to revenue? And why would you not, if you're an enablement person, ensure that you have got not only a certification or, or an accreditation with your sales folks of stand and deliver message and positioning, but why wouldn't you do the very same thing with your partner? That way, you don't have any miscommunication. You have alignment in messaging and positioning. You understand how to position the partner and when to step back and allow them to take the lead, which a lot of sales folks we both know have a hard time doing. But (laughs) most importantly, you are highlighting that partner and you are leveraging that relationship and you are both getting to the business outcome that you're trying to get to. And finally, with that certification of the partner, you are mitigating the risk of them stepping and talking out of line that's going to extend the sales cycle because you're both talking from the same hymn book.
0: So, last year I was working with an MSP client, and every time they brought this particular vendor in, the sales cycle length got increased. The salespeople managed to create the conditions for doubt to creep in or uncertainty on the path of the end customer. And they were getting increasingly frustrated because they had an entire team dedicated to working with this vendor. But uh, what they found was that they were nearly 60% behind target halfway through the year, because every time the salesperson or the salespeople from this company came in, they would upset the apple cart because they wanted to talk about the next shiny widget. They wanted to talk about What's in the blue sky roadmap, and so it created delays. How, how do you get enablement to make sure that the salespeople from the vendor side are learning how to shut the fuck up?
1: <laughs> technical term. Technical. Technical term. Right? term yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I
1: think it starts in the very, very beginning, and that is that enablement must, must, must share and always reinforce that the most important part of selling is listening not talking i believe that the most important part of selling is listening not talking i couldn't resist and and that's impossible for some to get their arms around i'm sure but look the problem is that we're now seeing sales out there having they're giving presentations instead of having conversations right it's one way it's not bilateral when you bring the partner in It's a forcing mechanism for a conversation because, for the first time, the salesperson is not the know it all on every topic. They're not expected to be. It's not as though you say, Okay, I know this piece stopped. Now I'm going to turn it over to the really smart person, and this is my channel person. It's no, I start the conversation. I get to a certain chapter in the book of the conversation, and I go, Hey, it's a new chapter. This person now steps up as the main character instead of me, and they're going to take you on a journey through this chapter, and we'll come back together in the next.
0: If we look at the typical syntax of a sale, vendors, particularly in the SaaS space, have a history of wanting to rush to the demo. Now, when you're part of um, a broader solution where your partners are involved, and you're probably operating at an enterprise level, How do you manage to rein them in so that when they do eventually earn the right to demo, then it's for the right reasons with the right people instead of just because one of the things that fascinates me, last month, I had four instances where clients were being put under pressure by their management because they weren't doing enough quotes, they weren't doing enough demos, they weren't writing enough proposals. And they weren't making enough dials. Now, these were guys who were anywhere between 140 and 220% of quota. And their manager was ragging, uh, ragging on them for those metrics, because that's what was important to upper management. So how do you get enablement to train upper management to focus on what actually matters and refocus their attention on advancement behavior instead of just self-satisfying Uh, Metrics that don't matter?
1: Great question. And it starts with that word that you just said, metrics. For the sake of measuring, but for true measurement of how we're moving forward and advancing deals, you have to start with the first and second line manager because that's where the rubber hits the road. And unfortunately, most of the time, it's teaching them how to break old habits because that's how they learned it coming up. And so they continue doing it. The way that I've always approached this is, asking a few questions. What metrics are important to you and why? The second is, if I could now institute an opportunity or a resource that could accelerate those metrics or at a minimum mitigate some of the risk in that, would you be open to it? Now, I'm leading them down the rabbit hole I wanted to go because invariably the answer is always going to be yes. And then my third question is, what if I told you that everything you're doing right now is the antithesis of getting to where you want to get to. You <laughs> see how I took them there? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's and I, and where I'm the that's where the getting, the, getting offended. <laughs> and that's where the conversation really starts. I mean, what do you mean? What I mean is you say you want to decrease time to revenue, you say you want to increase productivity for your sellers, you say you want to remove selling obstacles, and you also say you want to create customers for life. But you also say that I don't need a, a partner in to do that. Wrong answer. By bringing in a partner, you're actually accelerating every single one of those. So what if I could put in a program and then I talk through the program of the initial understanding the partners, understanding the value, understanding how to ask different questions? And you know, I I think the biggest thing I've learned is people don't understand partners. And I look at it in, in three ways, right? You've got your service partners, you've got your implementation partners, and then you've got your technology partners. The problem is no one's ever taught most of these sales folks what the differences are first and foremost. And then thirdly, what are the different questions to ask and how to utilize each one of them differently? And where in the sales cycle, excuse me, in the customer buying journey, is it important to interject each one of those differently? And so, you know, ask the sales leaders, how do you use a a service partner different than a tech partner, different than an implementation partner? And if they can't answer that question, there's your first problem. If they can't answer it, then you go back to the metrics piece of now taking their own words and saying each by each, here's how we can use each of those three different types of partners to accelerate and accentuate your ultimate goal. And again, metrics cannot just be based on ROI. There has to be a COI component, the cost of action. You say you want to get to these goals. What if we don't use a partner? How long will it take to get there? Will we ever get there? And will we have those Prospect long enough, or the customer long enough, to ever make it to that.
0: Now, this is really interesting because I'm seeing a direct parallel here. The research that's come out of Stanford and Warwick University, the Corporate Visions Game Commission, suggests that our biggest competitor out in the field is the status quo. Sixty percent of buying pursuits end up in the status quo. Now, my question here is this. What do you need to do in order to break the back of that? Because I suspect internally it's exactly the same thing. So at least 60% of the initiatives that enablement is bringing to the table are probably going to result in no change. Yeah,
1: agreed. You know, I've always looked at it this way being an old sales guy, the one thing I can count on is sales folks being competitive right, and and loving to be at the top of the org chart and loving their name and lights, I've realized there's always one sales leader that has had success working with the channel at some point in their career. Go and leverage that sales leader to create good friction and competition between them and the other sales leaders or the other sales regions. And what I mean by that by example, is you get that one sales leader. You get some success. You get a couple of small, low hanging fruit wins, and you may get a couple of medium sized wins. Guess what's happened now? You've got the attention of their peers, and they're like, okay, how come they get all the new toys? I wanna play too, but you as enablement can't go and sell that. You know who will? Your sales leader. But what you're going to do is coach that sales leader and how to now message that to their peers in sometimes a positive and sometimes a negative way. It depends on what your ultimate goal is, right? So now you've got the sales leader saying, yep, we did this because we worked with XYZ partners. Our time to close was trimmed. Our ARR went up. Cost of sale came or cost of penetration came down. And here's how we did it. Look, it's not magical. (laughs) It's collaboration and it's partnership. Invariably, someone may come to you and it may not be publicly. Let me put that out there. But some other sales leader is going to come and go, hey, how do I do what so-and-so did, right? And now, guess what you have? You've got two champions. And so just like a a wildfire, it starts with a simple match and and the blaze takes off from there. If you can't get one sales leader on your team, you're going to have a problem.
0: So what you've actually described is precisely the model of building the special forces unit partnerships that the best channel managers execute in order to build an effective channel. So actually, this then raises an interesting question. If you're going to look for really successful channel managers, maybe one pool to look for is successful enablement people. Bingo. You nailed it.
1: Because there's not a lot of, frankly, there's not a lot of enablement people that understand channel. That's why there's so much sales enablement out there, right? And Find someone that has worked with the channel and find out what has worked, what hasn't, and why it has worked and why it hasn't. Because otherwise, to your point, you're going to find the folks that try and replace sales with channel and they try and do things status quo the way it's always been done, and you're going to flop.
0: Well, to make the point, let me move in the right direction. Channel sales (laughs) is not a get-out-of-sales-free card. No, not at all. It is the hardest, the most complicated type of selling there is. If you think enterprise selling is complex, and we would describe that as cat herding, you now have an environment where if you're selling enterprise deals via partners, you now have only two currencies, trust and influence. And the only thing that you can do there is build that trust and grow that influence by demonstrating value. And it forces you To focus your attention on the other person, on the other partners, not on yourself. Because you cannot build those kind of trusting relationships. My pal Zach Selch has built over a thousand partnerships over the last 30 years in 130 countries. And his maxim, his motto is the only way out of my network is in a box. Now if you don't have, and he's still doing business with people he traded with 30 years ago. And his competitors are actually introducing him to business because they know that he's a better a better fit than they are now that is the kind of channel management that you really need if you don't foster recruit develop those sorts of uh, that culture and those sorts of channel managers then you are going to spend an awful lot of time uh, churning them the average channel manager survives about 2.1 years in a role They spend six months trying to find the lavatory, six months complaining and throwing their hands up in the air, saying how terrible everything was before they came in, six months implementing a bunch of stuff that no one asked for and no one wants, and then seven months getting their CV out and going on interviews. Now, the best channel managers and channel chiefs, they're typically lasting five to seven years in role. Now, that takes some real planning forethought, and it takes real guts to plant your feet and stay for that long because you've had to really earn your place. And you don't rush. What you do is you spend time with your partners, with the salespeople on the vendor side, making sure that the tools that you bring in are the ones that are necessary. You don't just create change for change's sake. So I'm now asking a question, which I'm getting a fair amount of slightly puzzled looks from, which is, what are the minimum? What's the minimum amount of technology you can have within your sales and your channel in order to enable your sales operation to operate effectively, whilst developing the most human relationships with your customers and your partners?
1: That's a great question. Before I go there, I want to come back to something you said a little earlier, and that is about <laughs> the hurting piece. If that's true for for internal, then for channel sales it's like hurting fleas because to your point you literally have trust and influence as your number one and number two tools in your tool belt right and the problem with trust is it's a funny thing is my mom used to say trust is something that takes a lifetime to earn a second to break and most of the time you never get it back Absolutely. so with that as the baseline of channel that's their number one currency is trust And which then turns into relationships. So to segue from that to to the tools, I think, you know, that's a great question. And I see why you get so many puzzled looks. And I think the answer is it depends upon where you are in the maturation cycle of your company. Right. Because as you grow, the tool set will, will increase. And it's also what are you hoping, not hoping, what are you working towards in the outcome with those tools? Right, Where are you trying to get to? What's the ultimate business outcome? And, and I think the third thing that I would be remiss if I didn't say it, there's so much out there right now, Marcus, that my analogy is just because it's out there doesn't mean you have to try it. <laughs> don't need every tool that's out in the world, right? And that's the problem with a lot of sales and folks. We get enamored by the shiny object and we want to go and do the cool thing. And then we try and shoehorn our, our channel partners into those tools. That's
0: not how it works. Not how any of this works. Well, this has been fueled by a number of things. Let me ask you this, Rod. How many corporate uh, email uh, subscriptions do you have at the moment? Small number. Five, six? Uh, Probably less than that. Probably three. Okay. And how many of those do you actually look forward to receiving their communications? Smaller number. (laughs) (laughs) Now- Virtually every single company out there has a marketing department that is spewing out email. They're trying to collect email addresses. They're producing collateral about their products. They are broadcasting and interrupting. And Mark Schaefer says it beautifully, the most human marketing wins. And in his book, Marketing Rebellion, he talks about how the best, the most cost effective, the most reliable form of marketing is all the stuff that goes on behind your back when your customers are talking behind your back. And when we think about it, <clears throat> we see a vast amount of money. I like mean, $265 billion was squandered on Facebook and Google advertising that got zero interaction last year alone. Then you add to that all the product data sheets and the uh, collateral that's being produced, the advertising that no one pays any attention to. I mean, seriously, when was the last time you sat through an ad break on TV? Uh, I try not to. Okay. None of us pay any attention to advertising. It's
1: become white noise
0: now. Exactly. I now know that if on satellite an advert break comes up, I can, cu- I can count to either 9 or 12 at 30 times fast forward and on the recording, because I always watch the stuff recorded, and I can just get through the uh, the ad break. No one pays any attention to advertising. The product data sheets go to technical people who can only say no or maybe. They don't go to people who actually can say yes and have the authority. Demos are done typically to engineers, to managers. They're not done to people who have typically have sign-off authority. They always have to defer to somebody else. So there's this rush to try and uh, get people onto their list. There's this rush to try and get people into a demo. There's this rush to try and knock out quotes and proposals, all of which is wasted because it is just noise. And the same thing is happening in the channel with MDF, Marketing Development Funds. Last year, I was working on a project to help a, a company restructure their prospecting approach. And they didn't take it on because it wasn't product centric. They had this shiny new widget, and they had they produced all of this marketing collateral, and their conversion rate was minuscule. I mean, a, you know, single-digit percentages, but they stuck with that because that's what they were used to. And I think what's required now is that we take a radical look. I mean, th- this COVID crisis has given us a god-given opportunity for us to look at our ent- entire marketing, enablement, sales, and channel and customer success operation, and look at it and say, well, what's really working? Mark Schaefer has this lovely turn of phrase, which is, the evidence is out there, but the results are not. Now, why is it that people are spending their time on stuff that we know doesn't work? They're measuring the wrong things. There is no return on that investment. It's just noise. You nailed it because this is the
1: way we've always done it. And the measurement has been vanity stats, right? Butts and seats and smiley sheets, is <laughs> what I call it, right? Yeah. And that's what they're looking for. We've had X number of, of views. We've had X number of likes. We've had X number of comments. What does that do for engagement? What does that do for interactivity? What does that do for, for your end customer That's great for building your brand. If you're looking for exposure and visibility, Sure, run with those stats. Here's the problem, and you nailed it. COVID has shifted the game, right? And I think the one thing that's missing from, that I see missing from MDF is the human component. It assumes that I'm going to give you what I think you need, and you're going to take it like cough syrup. Well, newsflash, guess what? It's not how the world works anymore. Ever since the invention of, of social media, you don't own your own brand as a company. You can help to craft it, right? But your customers, the feedback, your prospects, good and bad experience is what owns your brand. And that's negated by MDF. And I think this is where enablement has an opportunity to really step in and kind of right the ship, if you will. And what I mean is, there has never been a time where leading with empathy, compassion, and humanity has meant more than it does today. So, with that said, why wouldn't you now cater? To the individual and ask questions again back to listening and not talking ask questions that matter and i think mdf could make a small tweak and make a huge difference right especially post covid because outbound communications and we both agree must change and they must change now and i think if you take the linear focus Or the laser focus, excuse me, of not looking and sounding like everyone else, and taking a human focus, even as simple as creating what what my company is doing, and I'm calling them, you know, public service announcements, the PSA videos, not the oh we're all in this together. But I understand you're going through some things, and we're here to go through it with you. We're not selling to people, and MDF. Every time you send something out is to sell, and we both know the best way to sell is to help, right? So if you keep help in mind, it's Sharing info, sharing clear stats that matter to these people after you've asked questions and earned the right. Share some best practices from other thought leaders in your space. It doesn't always have to be about you and your company, right? Find those thought leaders and share. Share relevant best practices that are successful outside of the space that you're in. Newsflash, there are other verticals that are doing things really well. So why wouldn't you take those best practices and share it inside of the vertical that you play in and then share things like you know productivity tools and some useful remote worker best practices and here's another one share some free tools that are going to help them with their productivity that are obviously going to tie together with what your your company is selling but look let let's take it to its simplest terms stop selling and start helping and the only way you can help is to ask questions and listen versus telling people what they should be doing. I, you know, the one thing that, that I absolutely hate is when I get something and I read between the lines of the email and it says, I can't believe your company has been successful without filling the blank product that we sell. <laughs> that is the fastest way for me to unsubscribe on the, the planet. Instead, what if you said, hey, here are the problems we're seeing in your space. Here's where we've been able to help people that are companies and people that are having this problem. Here is a referral or a reference from someone that we've helped do it. Nothing like hearing this in someone else's voice other than yours. And then finally, here's how we'd like to help you. But we understand that we have to earn the right to get there. So can we start with a conversation versus the presentation that leads to a demo that then leads to the next steps? If we started focusing on the buyer's journey, as opposed to the selling motions, you automatically will start to close more because you're not trying to shoehorn people in and enablement leaders. These words I'm about to say are directly to you. The reason that people are focused on and sellers are focused on selling motions, sales process, sales methodology, et cetera, is because that's what you're teaching them. Stop it. Take a step back and say, what's the buyer's journey? Why are people buying? Who's buying? Who's a part of that buying committee? And then, how do we then take that piece and align that to our selling motions as opposed to the transverse of trying to shoehorn people in because I've got to close deals. I've got to hit my number. I've got to put something on the board. No one cares about that outside of your wall. Not saying it's not important. We've all got to close deals. But back to my initial statement humanity, compassion, and empathy. Because right now, Is a horrible time to only be focused on your company and selling. We all have to close sales, but that doesn't mean you are constantly selling. The old adage of always be closing, it's passe, it's dead now. Let it enjoy its rest in peace and change that mantra to stop selling and start helping. That's how we're going to make the shift with sales
0: enablement. I'd like to build on a couple of things that you said. One is in terms of that communication it's even better when you have the voice of an actual customer saying it rather than you just quoting them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The power power of video testimonials. And someone's always talking behind your back. It's best if they say good things. So have your customers talking. Encourage through your marketing, through your channel development activity, have the people that are absolutely integral and influential on your success, encourage them to speak about the work that you do with them, how you've helped them. And if you are not doing that, and that has to be the central focus, because I I genuinely believe most CMOs are redundant. They just don't know it yet because they're so focused on the wrong thing. If they were focused on generating that kind of trust and earning the right to do business, earning the loyalty of their customers, earning the faith of their customers and their partners, then you wouldn't have to spend the kind of billions that you do on pointless marketing that doesn't result in any positive effect. The metrics that matter, velocity, the speed with which opportunities are advancing through your funnel, and the buzz The subsurface contact and the subsurface communication that's out of the public spotlight, it's not the likes, it's not the comments, it's not the shares. Because that is just vanity. That's totally illuministic. It should be all about how other people are engaging with you. The majority of my inquiries come from people who followed my stories, my content, but had never once so much as liked, comment, or shared on any of my material.
1: I'm glad you bring that up because that is so true. That's how we're getting new businesses. People are following you. And I I always tell people, look, people are watching even when you don't know they exist because they may watch you for three, four, six months and never once like or comment. And suddenly, guess what? You've got a new customer because you were catering to them without even knowing it because you were being authentic.
0: It used to frustrate me I used to feel offended that I didn't get the level of engagement that other people did. But what's really interesting is I've uh, only in the last couple of months, I've had people who for 18 and 10 years separately have been following my material, have never once engaged. But the time that I happened to post something that spoke to them, and they've been loyally following that stuff, it's it's not like they haven't been viewing it that they just haven't engaged because the timing was wrong. And this then speaks to the next thing, personalized playbooks. I was speaking to uh, the guys over at Closed Loop, and Mm -hmm. they're fascinating. The idea that you create a playbook on the basis of the customer or the partner, and you create one in order to ensure that you follow the buyer journey instead of trying to shoehorn them into your sales process. I know you know the guys over there. So your thoughts Absolutely. on personalized playbooks?
1: I don't even know why we have to put the word personalized before playbook. Because that's the whole premise of a playbook, is that it is personalized and it's customized. And I think the reason we have to do it is because they, at one point, had started to become a commodity, and people are just mass producing. This. Here's the blueprint of success. Here's the customized, personalized blueprint of success. And if you're not doing personalized and customized playbooks, you're one, doing your customer disservice. And secondly, you're automatically and intrinsically creating a non-repeatable service with that customer. Because they're going to look at you and go, you gave me nothing, absolutely nothing. And I paid a lot of money for nothing. So if you, and I'll take it beyond playbooks. If you are not customizing and personalizing content whether it be white papers, whether it be processes, whether it be the platforms, et cetera, then why are you doing it? You're you're stealing money and you're denigrating your own brand. Now, back to the playbook. No two companies are the same. And even if two companies do the very same thing, they're at different points of the maturation cycle of that company. So how do you not hone in on where they are? Well, it's quite simple because, again, you're selling and you're not trying to help. If you're taking the advice I gave earlier of listening more than talking, there's no way you won't make a customized playbook because they're going to tell you exactly what their problems are. And if you are a practitioner and good at your craft, what you're going to do is now come back with ways to solve for the pain that they're feeling, right? You can either give me, there are times I need an aspirin. There are times that I need a Vicodin. It depends on the level of pain, right? And so you've got to understand and diagnose where is the pain level now. And if you're really good, that pain level right now is temporary. What we have to solve for and and be in fire prevention, not firefighting mode, is how do we stop the need for that pain level getting to Vicodin later? That's where the shift has to happen, Marcus.
0: Well, it was really interesting. I had a very similar uh, conversation now that you mentioned Shift Happens with Chris Ortolano along exactly these lines. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you guys. You pointed to something there which uh, is worthy of a question of its own, which is, is your content good enough to be a standalone product? If it's (laughs) not, you're not being authentic. The chances are that, You're just trying to shoehorn people into your idea of what they should be doing, and you should stop shooting on people. Agreed. So the premise of content in its
1: purest compound is information and assets that I can give that will create more fruitful engagement that will then lead to helping again to solve those problems and that pain that I was talking about. The problem is social media has put in the minds of folks that all content has to be a lead magnet, Ah. and it doesn't. We've got to learn to give to give, first of all. Most people put out content for the, the purpose of ROI on that content. If you put the content out give to give and sharing of knowledge and helping a broader audience, it goes back to what you're saying. You don't know how broad that audience is. We really don't. We, we don't understand the footprint that we're putting out. We're like a pebble with content. We drop it in the water and it turns into a ripple, right? You never know if that ripple is going to become an ocean that becomes a tsunami one day on a simple piece of content. So be authentic. Ask users and learners what they need. Ask where the problems are and then address those problems in your content. And it doesn't always have to lead to the advancement of the sale next. If you do it right, it will lead to that. If you build it specifically for that purpose, it won't
0: happen. It's like the dating game. The more you want them, the less they want you. Absolutely. Play hard to get sometimes. Absol- <laughs> you know what I mean? Tell me something. What would you recommend enablement specialists in particular pay heed to in terms of great content? I would pay heed and and
1: also pay homage to is that content something that the person or the company is putting out or that you want your company to put out that's going to help others or you every time you put something out trying to advance the sales cycle if that's the case you've got to break that the other piece is content is based upon the importance of it to the end user not to you and putting it out don't give people what you in companies what you think they need stop and ask and do some research. And then the final piece of content is, (laughs) (sighs) and I hope more enablement folks will, will understand this. Just because you put it out does not mean they will come. Just because you build it doesn't guarantee that it's going to always hit the mark. You've got to A, B test with content. Sometimes this works, sometimes that works. And you've got to understand when, how, and most importantly, why is this content working or not working? And as we say in in enablement, uh, our three biggest strengths are iterate, iterate, iterate. There you have it.
0: Okay. Look, Rob, this has been absolutely massively insightful. And actually, it's given me a whole bunch of ideas uh, for the next round of content that I'll be producing over the next few months. So thank you. Thank you. how can people
1: get a hold of you? I'll say the same words that I said to you the last time that we talked. If you can't get a hold of me, you're not really trying. Across all social media channels, Roderick Jefferson on LinkedIn, Roderick underscore J underscore associates on Instagram, at the voice of Rod on both um, <laughs> Facebook and Twitter. It keep, I want to keep things simple. If you've got questions, ask away. If we can help, if I can help in any way, I'd love to. But again, if there are times I can ask questions, excuse me, answer your questions, I'm here to give to give. I am truly a servant to help others.
0: When Sales Enablement 3.0 coming out?
1: Thank you for mentioning that. I was going to end with that. We are now inching closer and closer to that being released. It goes to the editor next month, end of year. Sales Enablement 3, 3.0, how to move from being the fixers of broken things.
0: Okay, so I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Would you be willing to give away 10 copies? Absolutely. Right. Okay. So for the 10 best questions that come in for either me or Rod, and the competition will close on the 5th of September, uh, midnight UK time. So the 10 best questions around sales and channel enablement will get signed copy from Rod of uh, Sales Enablement 3.0 and a signed copy from me of making channel sales work as well. So
1: and how can you not start formulating questions now with that as a goal?
0: Absolutely. And, and we'll open it up also if you come up with a great war story where you've been able to personalize and get your customers or your partners to do all the heavy lifting for you. So we'll leave it on that note. Rod Jefferson, thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, and share, and subscribe, more importantly. And also, if you'd like to get in touch, then please email me mcauchi at sandler.com or MarcusCowkey at me.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.